Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds. So how did somebody who was fascinated with teaching robots to make better decisions end up studying patterns of crime and being a better policeman? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So uh, we've, uh, we've started working on real problems that have impact and that can create a better world and a better society. And here at the Center for Translational Data Science, our main objective is to work with real world problems. And it seemed to me that it, the social sciences were not necessarily targeted with the proper techniques and data science skills needed for the field. Um, so when working on the social science domains, I thought of criminology as being one of the main exemplars where the use of data science over all the huge amount of data and the complex patterns and human behavior could really create an interesting problem for us where finding these patterns was going to be a challenge and at the same time would motivate the creation of new mathematical techniques to understand these patterns. Um, so yeah, I guess <laughs> that, that's, that's pretty much the transition. Yeah. I'm uh, sitting down today with uh, Dr. Roman Marchant uh, at the University of Sydney and uh, his great passion, of course, uh, aside from the book on advanced rock climbing I see on your table, is of <laughs> course data science and uh, Bayesian models and predictive modeling. Um, and we're gonna talk about a wide range of things, but before we get into that, you know, why is it that I think we struggle with this idea of uncertainty? And I think, especially when it comes to decision making, because you know, for people that aren't statisticians or experts in probability, we're sort of naturally deterministic about the way we're taught to make good decisions. Well, why is that potentially not such a smart idea in this new world we live in? Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, um, in the essence, I would say I'm also deterministic, but the problem <laughs> is there's no such thing as the perfect model. Right. right. All models that you can build are wrong and some are more useful than others, right? That's a famous quote. And uh, the fact that you are uncertain about the world because of its inherent stochasticity and the incapacity of finding that perfect model, you need to take into account the uncertainty in the possible outcomes, right? And getting a proper un understanding of what uncertainty is, how that translates to risk, and then that how can that affect our decisions, it's crucial. Otherwise, you jump into these problems of finding the best expected outcome, but nothing really goes exactly as expected. Right. Uh, so really, uh, I guess, being able to deal with uncertainty in a principled manner, as in quantifying the uncertainty from all the possible sources of uncertainty that there are in the data, in the actual real world that we live in, it is really important for decision well, making. You, you, so. you say sometimes it's better to be imprecisely correct than precisely wrong. Yes, yes, that's right. That's what I always <laughs> tell my students and what my actual PhD supervisor told me when I was doing my PhD. And I found it like really important thing to to have into account, right? I mean, if you are giving someone an estimation about tomorrow's temperature and you say uh, it's not going to rain, then they won't carry the umbrella, but then it might rain. So, you know, having an, an idea of your prediction and the uncertainty around the prediction will definitely allow you to make better decisions. Uh, you know, is that famous uh, quote, I think from Einstein, said, God doesn't play dice with the universe. but probably if there was anyone who who is naturally deterministic it would be god and the rest of us have to struggle yeah. with being probabilistic <laughs> right because yeah. essentially as you say if we if we had a perfect 
um, a perfect algorithm, yeah. we could be deterministic. Well, that's that's what I believe, though. But then you in would perfect have perfect knowledge. To, right. Yeah, have perfect knowledge, infinite knowledge about the position of and velocity of every atom in the universe. Then the world would be deterministic, but we just don't have that information. So, building models of society means that you don't have the exact correct model. Uh, you can build an infinite number of models, and you need to combine them in a smart way to quantify the uncertainty. And that's what Bayesian inference does, and what we uh, sort of like the principles that we base all our methodology. Has this become more important now that we have more data and we have the possibility of building? AI and machine learning systems, is it more important for human decision makers to understand probabilistic thinking? It is more important, but not because there's more data. In fact, uh, actually, at some point, more data doesn't necessarily decrease your uncertainty. It might even increase your uncertainty. Right. right? Um, and to be honest, the trickiest problems are the ones where you have least data. So in a criminal justice setting, for example, or a criminology setting, predicting uh, incidents of terrorism is much more complex than predicting a burglary. Burglaries, you have tons of examples, millions of data points, so therefore your model would be more or less more certain. It will be easier to find the patterns, whereas for terrorist attacks, for example, there's so many different possible explanations. So many, the, the amount of models, the space of models is almost infinite, but you only have a few data points. So which, that's what we call the small data problems, right. which are the most complex and harder, trickier to solve. There are a lot of small data problems, especially when it comes to not just terrorism, but strategic uncertainty. Yeah. What approach should we take to those sort of situations? Well, that, that's where we believe that being Bayesian is a fundamental thing. Well, what, what, is it, what does it mean to be Bayesian? Uh, okay. Maybe, yeah. maybe back up and definitely. Some yeah, being Bayesian is, is essentially uh, being able to properly quantify uncertainty by building fully probabilistic models. Right. right? So being Bayesian is about explicitly identifying that there's uncertainty in your predictions and uncertainty in your models. Right? Right. and evaluating the likelihood of the data given these models and then you will be considering all possible different models to come up with predictions. I mean the, the classic example of, of, of Thomas Bayes was the billiard ball table right where you know you're basically blindfolded and you're trying to figure out where a ball is by, by throwing another one and, and that idea is used you know by you know uh, French artillery in the 19th century you know to right. racket you know and get better at you know hitting a target. Yeah. But what does it mean that you have an uncertainty, not just in the data, but in the model itself? Right. So uh, when you're building, say, a regression model and you're fitting, a, you're fitting just a straight line on some data, right. there's not a single line that can fit that data. There's multiple ones. There are actually an infinite number of possible lines. And some will feel better, some will fit the data better than others. So that's why, essentially, by being uncertain about your model, you are giving a providing a probability distribution over the lines that can fit the data. Do, do machine learning systems do this? Is, is not necessarily, not at all. So right. only a subset, I would say, of machine learning techniques, the ones that we call uh, probabilistic machine learning from the area of statistical learning, right? Right. Are really the ones that use fully probabilistic modeling and Bayesian reasoning, right? There's a increasing amount of research to uh, create more sort of like Bayesian versions of other machine learning techniques. Like, for example, you would be familiar with neural networks or deep learning. Uh, there's people working on creating Bayesian versions of these. Right. Um, so let's let's now apply this to crime. I, I yeah. mean, you know, one of the the classic resource allocation problems if you're a police chief is knowing 
where to put your police on a beat in a particular area. Uh, and I think, uh, and I've seen you give a talk on this before, that you know this this idea has gone back a hundred years about building sort of complex maps about where you should be at a particular point in time in order to you know get the maximum sort of coverage of an area. That's right. Yeah, I, I guess in particularly when you are Bayesian and when you quantify uncertainty, you are able to use much more informed. Uh, you are able to take informed decisions because you're basing your decisions not just on an expected value, but your uncertainty, your risk around that expected value. Uh, the example in criminology is fascinating because even though I didn't work in crime, I used, I used to you know, make decisions for robots modeling ozone concentration or the coral reef depletion or you know, the kind of environmental modeling. But in criminology, what happens is that if police are making decisions just on the expected value, they would go to one location and they will revisit that location, find more crime and then go back to that location again, creating a problem which is uh, called over-policing. Right. right. Which is a, it's kind of form of a feedback loop, isn't it's it? It's exactly. It's a feedback loop where police would will estimate that there's a higher uh, risk in, a, in an area in terms of more crimes happening and they would revisit that location, find more crimes and so on. So what we're trying to do by considering more complex models that quantify the uncertainty is that now police, in their policing algorithms, they will be able to balance exploration and exploitation. So exploiting the previous patterns and knowledge of the number of crimes in an, er in an area and their uncertainty around that and explore areas where they haven't been patrolling before to be able to uncover crimes that have This is a classic trade-off in algorithmic design, isn't it? Um, the the trade-off between exploring versus exploiting. Yes. And, and, and is, is what you're saying is that, you know, the, the value of exploring is basically to potentially challenge whether your frame of reality uh, or your model is actually um, detailed or, or useful enough. Exactly. That's right. So we believe that because we have uncertainty in the space of model, as we've covered so far, to reduce that uncertainty, you need to visit specific areas. And that's where the value of information comes in. And you use this technique called Bayesian optimization to decide and optimize your patrolling routes, for example, in such a way where you recover useful information. What might be the other real-life examples of the exploration versus exploitation trade-off? Oh, there's so many different trade-offs. In fact, we're applying Bayesian optimization to a full suite of problems, not just criminology, right. as we are describing now. Uh, we're going to be starting, so you've probably heard about the huge problem that we have with bushfires here in Australia. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be using Bayesian optimization over drones to be able to monitor these fires and where these fires might start in the future, so, so that drones should be able to identify you know, explore the environment and at the same time go to those locations where the fire is more likely to start so that we can pick up when a fire started. But, but there's still a trade-off to go to areas where fires have not traditionally started in the past. Exactly. As potentially new flashpoints. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. So learning that is important then on mining, right? You need to drill down and find gold and you need to use your existing knowledge to predict how much gold will be there. But if your knowledge, if your knowledge is uncertain, right, and you quantify the uncertainty properly, you also have to explore regions where you don't know what the concentration of gold is, right? So again, in mining as well, in geothermal exploration, uh, and many other applications like groundwater monitoring, and so on. If, if you're not a data scientist, and you're a, um, you know, a government or a business decision maker, 
and you're now have invested in models which are giving you predictions, uh, but with a level of certainty around them. I mean, first of all, how do, how does the model express the level of certainty, and and how as a non-technical person should you actually process that information? See if I can explain this in simple terms. I would say that in order to quantify the uncertainty in your predictions, uh, I guess what we do is formally run every possible scenario. Right. So we use simulation algorithms where uh, we have some random components to this. We, we use all the possible different models that I was telling you about, right? right? We're not sure about one single model. We have hundreds or thousands. So like Markov and Monte Carlo simulations. Yes, we use Monte Carlo simulations, right. which is essentially simulating different models and seeing what the outcomes of these different models are in terms of their predictions. And then we can get a distribution over the predictions that would give us an idea of what the uncertainty is and what the expected value of the prediction is. Using those parallel universes in a way, right, these are all different possible realizations of the world we live in. Those are, again, we believe the best way of quantifying the uncertainty. So what is the number you get out of that? Is it like a like a 93% confidence? No, or? you get an actual probability distribution. Right. So which is essentially a probability density function, a mathematical representation of probability in the space of numbers. What does a business leader do with a probability distribution? <laughs> uh, okay, so there's, there's, there's some that are simple ones, like the Gaussian distribution that everyone is familiar with, right? Yeah. Um, but in reality, you will not necessarily get exactly a Gaussian distribution, right? With a Gaussian distribution, it's easy. You have just the mean and the variance. So you have the expected value of your prediction and the uncertainty around that straight away. But with, a, uh, with the output of our methods, you get probability distributions that are not necessarily nicely behaved. They can have, for example, multiple modes. So you have two candidate scenarios that are maybe equally likely, but are distant apart. So multi-model probability distributions and more complex outcomes. Well, what is the right way to have a conversation with your data scientist about, about this? I mean, if you have a, a lawyer, and a, lawyers will always give you kind of things in an alternate. You can do things, and they'll, they'll give you enough information to make a business-shaped decision around the uncertainty and risk on a strategy. But what is the question that a business leader needs to ask the data scientist in order to feel that they can be confident in, in picking one alternate universe or another? Yes, I, I, I would say that if you're going to make a decision and you want to quantify risk, you need to make sure, and you're a business person that doesn't necessarily know all the details about the method, is trying to understand with your data science uh, expert or the team, right, or your software engineering team with the mathematicians, is what assumptions have you made along the way? Right. And those assumptions, how you know, how do they affect the uncertainty quantification on the outcome, right? So if if you're making a strong assumptions and you are quantifying your uncertainty based on these assumptions, that uncertainty is not necessarily properly quantified. Right. And and and, and I guess this area of assumptions and where the data comes from starts to bring us to some of these issues around ethics. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I remember when we were talking before, you mentioned that one of the, the consequences of when you moved out of the world of, you know, robots making decisions versus politically loaded models where they have real world implications, the ethical dimension started to become more apparent. Can you talk about that particular issue you discovered when you were studying your, the covariance? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. So uh, one of the first models, when I first switched from environmental monitoring with drones to uh, criminology studies using Bayesian inference, the first thing I did was build a 
simple, relatively simple model of, in this case, domestic violence with data that was available uh, from the local government, which is publicly available here in, in, in Australia, at least at a local, local government area aggregation level. I built a model for domestic violence where the predictors were uh, demographic uh, characteristics of the population living all across New South Wales here in Australia. And just sort of like really putting <laughs> all this information on a, on a simple algorithm that would just predict the level of domestic violence based on income, uh, race, in this case, if you're indigenous Australian or not, um, if you are educated or not, you know, a whole bunch of 15 or more covariates, right? And then run a regression model, right? What the outcome of the algorithm was, it told us that the most important predictor was if you were indigenous Australian or not. Oh, gosh, right? Which is <laughs> which is was really concerning for us when we when I first looked at the results. Was like, okay, there's definitely something wrong here. It's not really the color of your skin that is that is making you or not a person that will commit a crime. Uh, there's something else to it. But if you just take the data, you put it in a black box model, and you look at the outcome, then this is what you get. So I really needed to start understanding more about the explainability of the system that I was building, about you know causal structures that might be affecting my data and existing bias, and how to be able to take that into account when I'm doing the interpretation and design of the model. I mean, I mean, this is super problematic, isn't it, in the sense of you know, who is actually to blame for this? I mean, it's not like you, the, the designer of the model, was inherently racist, or that the data itself was inherently flawed it actually reflected underlying structures in society. Yes. Uh, so the model, in a sense, was correct, but the actual um, implications were deeply unsettling. I guess that that's the key, is that we were basically just looking at correlations, right? Mm. And correlation, everyone knows, it's not really a cause, right? So you have a link, right, a correlation between indigenousity and domestic violence in this country because basically, you know, historically everything that can go wrong has unfortunately happened with the uh, minority groups here in Australia where they have lack of education opportunities, lack of employment and are more, have more contacts with the criminal justice system and so on. So the data is definitely... And as you said, like the, the over-policing thing is when, when you're over-policed, you find more crime. Exactly, right? So I guess being able to take all of these things into account and, and, and encode this somehow into the model is what we're actively doing at the moment. And that takes us to dynamic Bayesian networks where we are using not just a simple regression model to correlate one in input with an output, but we are building causal structures that can allow us to untangle uh, the directions and the underlying social structure. Oh, right. So yeah. to see what really what factors really drive. Exactly. Right. I mean, this has become an issue when these systems just get baked in to... Um, criminal justice systems without due consideration. I mean, there was the classic ProPublica study yes. in Broward County where they were using a sentencing algorithm, which was deeply flawed. Yes. Uh, yes. Because it was essentially a feedback loop. <laughs> yeah, well, that, I mean, we we don't know, and I guess not many people know the mechanisms by which this uh, COMPASS right, uh, algorithm is doing on the background, right? It, yeah. it was even denied. Uh, one of the... 
One of the one of the individuals that was trialed and sentenced based on the score assigned by Compass challenged the algorithm in court, and he was denied access to the details and the mechanisms of the algorithm because it was claimed to be a trade secret of the company that uh, created these. Uh, the, the, this is a recurrent theme. There, there was a case, I think, uh, regarding teachers a couple of years back where. Um, teachers were basically being graded based on an algorithm. When they challenged it, it was they were told it's proprietary. Exactly. Um, yes. So they, they're not really <laughs> opening the box. So we don't know how much are they using certain covariates in what way or what the algorithm and mechanisms are really doing. Are they doing this causal inference I think that I was telling you about where you find the underlying factors that are creating more propensity of risk or are they just really using the logistic regression setting that everyone uses? In that I mean, if you, if you step back and, uh, you know, as we try to think what the right ethical framework is going to be for the way we use algorithms and data, because, you know, you, you can't take the extreme approach of sort of banning all algorithmic analysis. Mm -hmm. Certainly uh, not. Because yeah. there's, there's such potential. Um, although, you know, it, it is funny that in France the, the judges have actually passed a law making it illegal um, I think with a jail sentence of up to five years for anyone using analytics to study their decision-making, right? <laughs> but but there, there are clearly benefits. But how do you think about the moral dimensions around this? Um, if you want to avoid um, essentially uh, unacceptable outcomes? Yeah, well, definitely. It's a complex issue. In fact, uh, we are organizing a conference here in Australia. I'll, uh, take the chance to invite everyone to the Ethics of Data Science Conference. Uh, right. We are organizing, this is happening at the end of March. If you just Google Ethics of Data Science Conference, you should be able to see us on first link here at the University of Sydney. And we're trying to think about all the possible moral dimensions that you need to consider to build ethical algorithms, right? Or ethical data science techniques that can be useful for decision-making in real-world systems. In essence, you need them to be transparent Everyone needs to be able to know what are the algorithms that you're using, what are the sources of the data, right? Fully transparent decision-making and processing of data. Accountable as well, so understand the accountability, who is making the decisions, and if those decisions are wrong, who is to be held accountable. Interpretable as well. So even though machine learning systems can be transparent, they might not be interpretable, right? For example, a neural network will have hundreds of thousands of parameters that make up the model, but none of these really mean anything to a human, right? They're not interpretable. So you cannot have a black box algorithm make a decision on society. These have to be algorithms that, as I was telling you before, have some kind of causal structure or some kind of interpretation to the parameters and mechanisms by which the algorithm or the mathematical model is jumping to the outcomes. So we've covered transparency, interpretability, accountability, uh, and also very important is fairness, right? We need to make sure that these algorithms are able to take into account existing biases in the data set and compensate for bias and, and, and create equal opportunities for you know, whatever protected uh, attributes we're trying to uh, care about. For example, race, gender, you know, we might be interested in assigning insurance that is fair with respect to gender or whatever is legally required in where these algorithms are being used. So if you, if you take this back to the criminology example and, and you imagine you're the 21st century police chief of the future and clearly you'll be well educated on ethical dimensions and you'll have some experience about you know, dealing with lawyers who are challenging your algorithms that you that you're actually have invested in and platforms that you're using. But how, how, what are the new set of capabilities? I mean, to be a probabilistic 
detective of the future. I mean, rather than doing police work, you're actually doing, spending a lot of time thinking about the models that you're using for policing. Well, it needs to be a multidisciplinary and joint effort, right? right. Uh, data science without the expert criminologists is really nothing, right? I work with the Sydney Institute of Criminology here at the university. I work with police, uh, with the Bureau of Crime and Statistics and Research to understand you know, their on-field work and how their knowledge can be translated and incorporated into algorithms as well. Right. Um, so uh, achieving a multidisciplinary effort where you understand the psychology of criminals and somehow link that into the mathematical models and look at the data to come up with informed predictions is uh, the way to go. The problem is that I believe so far the proper solution to these complex decision-making algorithms is not there yet, right? So Compass is really compass and other tools we strongly believe that are not ready to be used on actual decision making on humans. Uh, in fact, we've had opportunities to start implementing right. similar algorithms on the criminal justice here uh, system here in Australia, but we just haven't committed to do that yet because we don't understand fully the implications. And they talk about this as non-instrumentality, you know, that you know, human beings shouldn't be part of the system that's being studied and optimized. Yeah, well, I mean, in this <laughs> case, ultimately, that will be the case, but it's, it's well, and, and they're so hard to evaluate as well. Right. right. So imagine building a uh, recidivism estimation system, right, where you are releasing inmates on, on parole based on some mathematical representation of the world, how do you make that decision without putting society at risk, right? I'm going to, you know, leave this uh, serial killer go to just evaluate if the algorithm was correct or not, if it was going to kill somebody else, right? You cannot do that. So, uh, well, it gets, I mean, to, to really do it correctly, you get close to what we talked about before, which is you have to almost know the speed and direction of every atom in the universe. Yeah. To, right. to actually be able to model an individual's life potential like, decisions. Yes, exactly. So I guess risk. in this setting, <laughs> what we are trying to do at the moment is build these risk prediction algorithms that quantify the uncertainty, right? That can say, well, you might be classified as a potential, uh, a, a person that will potentially recidivate, but there's uncertainty around that. And quantifying that uncertainty is important to make that decision. So it's not just your a risk value from one to 10, it's the uncertainty around that. And properly quantifying that is important and what decision makers should use as well. I'm also doing research at the moment on achieving what we believe is the best solution, which is getting the best of both worlds in terms of human reasoning and decision making and the power of computation of machines on some kind of cyborg decision maker right. where you would have, for example, in the criminal justice setting, you have a judge making a decision. But you don't have just a judge, you also have a machine making a decision. And they would both assess the likely uh, outcome of a decision of parole or not. But then when they don't match, when the human is saying something and the machine is saying something else, you can, for example, being a third expert, uh, another judge or someone to uh, sort of like mediate between the two decisions. Uh, I think something similar happens in the health system when you have two doctors and wives saying that there is cancer, the other one saying that there's not, you get a third one, right? And the advantage of that model, of course, is that you can over time benchmark the humans versus the machines. Exactly. Well, and not just that, but then achieving maybe a system that learns when the humans make better decisions and under what circumstances the machines make better decisions and get the best of both worlds. Just, just bring it back to what we were talking about before about the future of um, bushfires. And, yeah. you know, why, why do you think that data and um, 
and modeling uh, is going to help us essentially you know, master some of the challenges that nature puts upon us? Well, at the moment, uh, here in New South Wales, there were many challenges in terms of the bushfire. The first was really understanding the dynamics of the bushfires, where were these spreading, and how to properly allocate resources in a way that you could fight the crimes in the best way possible, right? Uh, it's a very complex spatio-temporal modeling problem. Right. And then... Over, over vast areas of bushland. Yes, exactly. Vast areas of bushlands of changing uh, environment conditions, right? So it's not just that the that the fuel load or there's a lot of mass in the forest, but you also have temperature changes, you have humidity levels and wind speed and direction that is constantly changing. So assessing all the possible realities in terms of environmental conditions and coupling that with the uh, long-term characteristics of the bush, right, to come up with real-world or real-time predictions of how fast the crime, the, the, the fire will be moving on different directions right. and how do you monitor and... And, and, and it's not just dealing with the crisis when it's happening. You could use similar models to uh, proactively intervene before you have a Exactly, yes. Yeah. So part of the projects that we have uh, at the moment as ones that we are actively working on. So we've created this bushfire task force um, at the uh, Data Analytics for Resources and Environment Center, which is another center that I'm part of, right? And in this center, with this task force, we're actually collaborating with insurance companies. We're collaborating with um, other drone uh, manufacturers as well to start generating these complex models that allow you to estimate the risk of fire basically, right? So flammability indexes, fuel moisture content of the bush and being able to build complex models that use environmental conditions and the historical data of bushfires to come up with a probability of fire at different locations, right? You can intervene, you can do controlled burns in different areas, right? And, and take into account where it is more likely for a fire to happen and again, exploitation, but also exploration, where you're not sure if a fire will happen, take more measurements and decide if you would make a burn there or not. So again, basin optimization for bushfires is what we are uh, hoping to apply in the near future. So ultimately, it comes back to the way we think about uncertainty. And w what do you think, in essence, really then qualifies you to be a more effective decision maker in the 21st century, whether you're a police chief, a, f a, f uh, you know, a fire station chief, or a business leader? Well, definitely, if I was going to ask you if you were to invest all your money in a particular stock, because my expected value of this stock was this much, the first thing you were answer, but how sure are you about that, right? Humans inherently need to understand uncertainty to quantify the risk and make decisions. And it all comes up to a proper quantification of uncertainty, where you've laid down your assumptions, you've used a fully probabilistic model that can quantify your uncertainty. It doesn't matter if you're working in criminology, if you're working in political science, or if you're working on bushfire prediction, the best decision that you can make is by using the expected value and the uncertainty around those estimates. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.